0: Good to see you again this morning. So excited to be together to uh, dig into the word and worship the God of this word together. And what a privilege it is to be able to do this with you. Uh, God has blessed us in so many ways as a church, and uh, we have another opportunity here together to receive more of his blessing intended for us by just opening his word to us and reading it, studying it, praying over it. So if you uh, are here today for the uh, first time in the last two weeks, I began our um, study of the Gospel of Mark last week and had the first introduction to this book last week. And today I'm going to offer you the second introduction. Not that they're different, but it's kind of like part two uh, so that uh, you can have a good foundation from which to build your understanding of the Gospel of Mark, and then, of course, apply the book, apply the truths of the book, follow the Savior of the book for the rest of your life, all right? (laughs) Isn't that the goal when we sit under the word? That's it. So uh, if you have a Bible, you might uh, benefit from having it open to the Gospel of Mark where we just read and uh, follow along when I refer to it. But uh, last week, And the first introduction to the Gospel of Mark, I talked to you about uh, uh, chaos versus control, if you remember. And chaos, of course, is something we're all familiar with, something that is all around us and really kind of undoing our world as we sit here, the world falling apart all around us. And I talked about how control or the sovereignty of God oversees all of this, including the chaos. And how he uses chaos and he has since the Garden of Eden to accomplish his purposes in our lives and the purpose of this creation, which is to bring glory to him. And so today we're going to uh, now dive into the second introduction to the Gospel of Mark. And I want you to think of uh, today's sermon as kind of a trailer. Uh, I don't know about you guys, but um, my wife and I would almost watch trailers instead of the movie. Um, because you get the highlights. It's kind of like cliff notes to the movies, Um, sort of. But most of the time, when you watch a trailer, you see all the highlights and don't need to watch the movie. But this isn't the case here. My goal here is to whet your appetite so you'll want to watch the rest of the movie. So you'll want to read the rest of the book so that you want to hear the rest of the sermons. Okay, so today is not gonna be a, a, a thing that is the highlights and you don't have to come back anymore. All right, that's not happening today. I'm just whetting your appetite. I'm hanging a carrot out here for you and I hope you'll bite, all right? Uh, anyways, this is, this is the introduction to the Gospel of Mark and I'm praying, as I've said before, that the study in the Gospel of Mark will motivate you to ground your life on Jesus Christ. That is the purpose of the scriptures is to draw you to Christ, to show you Christ, to motivate you to fill your life with Christ. And um, this is one of the best places to do it right here, Sunday morning together with us, as we unpack these verses, verse by verse, and help you see Jesus in them. Uh, A question that I wanna ask you to kinda help draw you into where I'm at is, is this. Do you think that your focus in our current chaos and however you would you would interpret that current chaos, because I think we all see the chaos. but do, do you think that your focus in our current chaos is sufficiently on Christ? Or have you misplaced your focus? Have you misplaced your hope in other things? in things the world might offer as solutions to the crisis that we are experiencing? Um, or to the crisis that may be in your life that the rest of the world isn't experiencing? Are you you placing your hope and trust on Christ or on other things? Uh, Mark's argument is that knowing Jesus has great importance, great value in our current economic, social, political, and health concerns. What, what, What role is Jesus playing in your life right now? Is he over here in this Jesus compartment, religious compartment? Or does he permeate every compartment of your life? Is he overseeing all areas of your life? Your family, your vocation, your, your children, your relationships, finances, everything. Is Jesus permeating all of that? Or do you have Jesus in a compartment someplace? Maybe that you pull out or open up on Sunday, or maybe on your small group night or youth group. Uh, where is Jesus in all this, in this picture? Uh, I think you'll see, after we study the Gospel of Mark, that Jesus plays a much more substantial role in all events in our lives than we may realize. I, I want you to understand that this sermon series is, help, is designed to help you see that, that Jesus has application, the person of Jesus, the work of Christ has application to all categories, all compartments of your life. This, this is what we're going to be doing together. Opening the Gospel of Mark, looking at a few verses and saying, see, Jesus is this for you today. So let's meet the author. Can anybody tell me who the author of the Gospel of Mark is? It's, it's not a trick question. Mark, thank you. Yeah, this is very, very difficult to discover, but it's there right at the top of my copy. Uh, The Gospel According to Mark. Now, who was this guy? He wasn't an apostle. So what's he doing writing Scripture, right? He wasn't an apostle. He had no firsthand knowledge of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. So what's he doing writing the Gospel? Who is this guy? Well, I'm going to spend the next few minutes telling you And then here in the next few minutes, you'll understand why God chose Mark to share this gospel with the world. All right. So the author was Mark. In Acts, we discover his name is actually John Mark. John is his Hebrew name. Mark is his Greek name. But he is called John Mark, and he's the cousin of Barnabas. And you need to keep these facts in mind as I explain to you who Mark is. He's the cousin of Barnabas, and we meet him for the first time as a young man in Acts chapter 12. Uh, Now, listen, Acts 12, 12. When Peter realized this, realize what? You remember when Peter was put in prison in, in Jerusalem and chained between two guards, and in the middle of the night, an angel wakes him up and walks him out of the prison, and he thought he was having a vision until he found himself out in the cold air and he finally woke up and said, oh, I'm out of prison. That's what this is talking about. When Peter realized that he was out of prison, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. Now the reason that Luke here in in Acts describes Mary this way is because there's 900 other Marys in Scripture. If you don't realize this, just Read one gospel, and there's Mary, Mary, this, Mary. It's the only name they used for women, I guess. Maybe Martha, you know, but Mary, 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 Mary. And so here Luke wanted to let us know which Mary this was, which Mary was having a prayer meeting in her house. It was Mary, the mother of John Mark. At this time, a 14-year-old, maybe 15, all right? Now, Mark again, the cousin of Barnabas, was in close association with the apostle Peter, the leader of the disciples and apostles, and the apostle Paul. He was in close association with these two heavy hitters. Why? Because the church in Jerusalem met in his house. And so he got to be you know, backstage, if you will, <laughs> with these apostles. So he got influenced by that level of spiritual maturity, spiritual leadership. And now, all these events, in case you wanna go back and get the details yourself, are between Acts 12 and Acts 15. But Mark becomes friends with Peter. And at the time, like I said, Mark was probably in his early teens, but Peter was in his mid to late 30s, all right? And there's about 20 years difference between these two men. Um, And it was uh, the Apostle Paul who was introduced to John Mark by Peter and and where that happened was Peter and no I'm sorry Paul and Barnabas were pastors up in Antioch all right pastors of a church in Antioch and there was a famine in the land so Antioch sent their pastors Paul and Barnabas down to Jerusalem to help minister to the needs of the church in Jerusalem Here he meets this young man Mark the Apostle Paul. And Paul's first reaction is, this kid's something special. And so Paul starts pouring into John Mark. Peter starts pouring into John Mark as a young teenage guy. Teenagers, how would you like your youth pastor to be Paul? Peter, who's your youth pastor? Peter or Bob? I'd go the Apostle Peter on this one. And this is what John Mark had at his disposal. Crazy. Listen, Acts Acts 12, 25. And Barnabas and Saul, or Paul as we know him in the New Testament, returned from Jerusalem, and when they had completed their service, bringing with them John. They liked him so much, they brought him from Jerusalem to Antioch to have them help them in ministry at Antioch as a teenager. (laughs) This kid was special. So, this is, this is an important introduction to this guy whose gospel we are going to be studying. He, he turned out to be a very useful, useful tool to Paul, Barnabas, Peter, um, in their missionary efforts. And, and it was evident to everyone. In fact, when he came with Paul and Barnabas back to Antioch, the whole church in Antioch said, there's something special about this kid. We're going to send you... John Mark with Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey as a teenager. This isn't some seminary graduate, this is a teenager who we're talking about, something special about him. And by Acts 13, we see Mark, Paul, Barnabas leaving on their first missionary journey. Turns out there was a problem with the teenager, imagine that, a problem with the teenager. Anybody recognize those things, teenagers and problems? It happens a lot. But you know what, Uh, I love teenagers. Sometimes I, I forget that I'm still not one. But these people in Antioch recognized his worth but things turned sour with John Mark. In Acts 13, 13, after the missionary journey had begun, things got tough and John Mark deserted the group. John Mark turned his tail and ran. (laughs) Listen, verse 13 of Acts 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and they came to Perga in Pamphylia and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. This was a sad occasion for everybody that knew John Mark. He tucked his tail between his legs and ran back to mommy in Jerusalem. Um, He disappeared. He doesn't show up again for about a decade. He didn't sit well with the Apostle Paul, as we can see in Acts 15. Let me read for you Acts 15, verses 37 through 39. Now Barnabas, this member, Barnabas is Paul, uh, John Mark's cousin. Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark. This was later, after everything, the dust had settled. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark, his cousin, and he sailed to Cyprus. But Paul took Silas and went a different direction. So evidently, the apostle Paul had lost complete confidence in John Mark the one whom he had such high hope for just a a couple years earlier Um, because John Mark had deserted them. But here is where I want you to see uh, the grace of God in this young man's life, in Mark's life, and see how God used him in tremendous ways in spite of his failure. I want you to listen closely. Because if you're like me, you can relate to failure at one point or another. The patience and goodness of God. Later in his ministry, the apostle Paul realized how valuable John Mark was to the cause of Christ. How did that happen? He went from saying, I don't want anything to do with that deserter to this guy's special again. What happened? Well, over time, Even if at one point he had failed, John Mark demonstrated his value to Paul's ministry and the kingdom of God by his faithfulness. Why? How? What changed? A key factor, listen, a key factor in this transformation of this young man was the mentorship of the Apostle Peter in Jerusalem. All right, so John Mark went running back to Jerusalem to mommy and guess who was there? The Apostle Peter, who mentored him, who loved him who also himself knew something of failure and restoration, didn't he? You Remember Peter, that guy? Yeah. That's the one who mentored this young man back to spiritual health, back to spiritual vitality, back to spiritual usefulness. Peter patiently discipled him to the point where he became very valuable to Peter, and then to Paul, and then to the entire church, and now... To you and me because he wrote this gospel Peter in 1 Peter five thirteen says calls John Mark his son in, in Colossians four ten, after this transformation had been taking place in John Mark's life this is what Paul said about John Mark Aristarchus my fellow prisoner greets you and Mark the cousin of Barnabas concerning whom you have received instructions if he comes to you welcome him the apostle Paul talking about Mark after he had recovered, been restored. And then at the end of his life, almost right up to the point of his execution, the Apostle Paul says this to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.11, Luke alone is with me, who John Mark also knew. But he says, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. What a change. What happened? Jesus happened. (laughs) This is great encouragement from the failure of John Mark. Knowing that this is the, the, the man behind the pen here. This is the one who's writing to us of the value of Christ in everyday life. If you've ever failed you really appreciate the gospel of Mark. Even though John Mark may have failed at one point in his Christian life, he recovered by God's grace. He pursued consistency, faithfulness over time because of the goodness of God shown to him through the apostle Peter, through a mentor, a godly man. John Mark wasn't discarded by God and thrown onto the trash heap. No, the Lord continued to work in him and through him, and the Holy Spirit chose him specifically to be one of the four to give the gospel in the New Testament. What can we learn from this? Well, I think the lessons are obvious and on the surface, especially if we've made errors. But God uses broken people all the time is one thing we can learn, right? That should make you feel good. That should give you some hope. If you're like me and like almost everybody else on the planet, we come from broken backgrounds at one point or another, for one reason or another. God uses people who have failed, and I mean fantastically failed, to where your failure is recorded in the most popular book ever written. That kind of failure. God, through the gospel, Mark says, restores and refurbishes soiled and broken people. He did it with Peter. He did it with Paul. He did it with Abraham. He did it with David. How many others in biblical history have we seen God restore? Hmm? <laughs> Almost every character in Scripture. Right? How many people since Scripture was, has been completed has God restored and refurbished? How many in this room? Friends, God can take your life and renew it. And through faithfulness, consistency, sacrifice, and fellowship with other more mature believers, God can use you to great ends for his kingdom. If you have failed, don't remain in isolated failure. Reinsert yourself into the kingdom of God. Reinsert yourself into relationships and fellowship with other believers. Pursue Christ once again. And for more mature, more seasoned believers, what can we learn from this? If God's not gonna give up on this person, maybe I shouldn't, right? If God's not gonna give up on my child, maybe I shouldn't. If Jesus thinks that he can be useful, maybe I should think the same. Okay, so let's dive in, your Bible's open. We've talked about who the author is. Look at the very first sentence in the Gospel according to Mark the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We'll get into this next week, but notice the beginning isn't the manger here. The beginning isn't time before time. The beginning is John the Baptist. But look, what, look more closely at the sentence. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, Who can tell me what the gospel means? What's it referring to? Good news, right? That's what the word gospel means. The beginning of the good news of Jesus, his human name, Christ, his divinely appointed name, Jesus Christ, who happens to be the God of the universe, the Son of God, to finish the sentence. What an introduction. (laughs) What a way to start a letter, a book. Let me tell you something. This is the only time in this book that John Mark shares his own opinion about the identity of Jesus Christ. It's the only time. Sounds strange, doesn't it? Until you see his strategy. The rest of the book is filled with examples of Jesus's work in and through other people. And Mark is just presenting them to you and saying, you make your own decision who Jesus is. He's already given us his opinion in the very first sentence, but then he says, you tell me who he is, the rest of the book. It's a wonderful, a wonderful strategy. It works out really well if you're on the fence or if you're wondering really who who this Jesus is, like the rest of the nation of Israel in the first century. But this is an awesome presentation of Jesus Christ. We're gonna call this a drama, really. Uh, This drama has three acts, um, but Mark writes this story in such a way that there's manageable structure. We can see act one, act two, and act three. And act one begins in here, chapter one, verse one, and goes all the way to chapter seven, verse 23. I think that's in your notes, that's act one. And in this act, well, let's title this act first. The beginning of Jesus' ministry. Act one, the beginning of Jesus' ministry. What's the setting? Where is it taking place? Galilee. That's up there by the Sea of Galilee in northern Israel, where Jesus was raised from infancy, well, after infancy, after two years old and on. He was raised in Nazareth. But he made Capernaum, Capernaum, the kind of the center of his ministry. He he lived in Capernaum after he was an adult. He recruited his disciples from the area of Capernaum, um, and that's where the setting was. What's the theme of this first act? It's Jesus' power and authority. That's the theme. Look at everything Jesus can do and everything that he has said. Look at his power and authority from his teaching to his miracles. You make the decision for yourself based on what he said and what he does. That's the theme. Everyone was blown away by his teaching and miracles and asking, who is this guy? We, we read it this morning in verse, uh, um, where was that? He, he said, after he, he uh, and they were amazed. And they went into Capernaum and immediately the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they, they were astonished at his teaching. They were amazed at what he had done. And they said, we've never seen anything like this before. Amazed. Amazed. Uh, They were just blown away by the person of Jesus Christ. And so in the first act, Mark's goal is to show us how Jesus is stronger than every other power in existence, in nature and in the spirit world. Jesus demonstrates his power over nature, remember by calming the storm on the Sea of Galilee, uh, by walking on water. He also demonstrates his authority over spirits by throwing out demons, by raising the dead, I'm um, back to life by healing malignant diseases. He makes food out of nothing. It's just example after example after example about the exceptional nature of this person called Jesus. Mark says, you tell me who he is. Mark goes even beyond Jesus' authority over nature and the spirit world and over death and disease and clearly communicates that Jesus being God has authority over all judgment. He has authority over who lives and dies, over who has their sins forgiven and who doesn't. He has authority over all judgment. And there's only one who can have that authority, right? Mark says, who do you think he is? So what an amazing story we have in front of us. Mark wants his readers to understand that Jesus was carrying forward the story of the Old Testament about God's intent to rescue lost in a dying world. That's not a new story. That story began in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned. You remember we talked about this last week in chapter 3, verse 15. Immediately after they had sinned, God comes and says, but I'm going to send a Savior. Verse 15. It's the same story that's been carried through all the Old Testament, now here Jesus is, Mark is saying, he's here to com- complete that story, to fulfill that story. This is God's design, to send a savior into the world, to send, to send his son into the world, which, which was uh, a unbelievable, necessary blessing to all of mankind, because in his coming, we see the way in which we can actually live as God intended us to live with him and with one another. In this joyful, loving harmony that God desires each of us to have with Him and with each other. Here is the repeated application of Act 1. Are you ready? Here's what we're going to see over and over and over again in Act 1. God loves and restores people. Where do you think Mark got that information? (laughs) From his own experience. God loves and restores people. You must know that the good news is more than just being saved from hell, right? Do you know that coming to Christ is is infinitely greater and better than receiving a ticket to heaven? This is is important for you to know. The good news includes a complete renewal of your life, a a complete transformation from the core of your being outward. Jesus isn't just for Sundays. Jesus doesn't just belong in a compartment. He, he, he is for Sundays, certainly, but he's, Jesus is, is good news for every day of the week. And this book will teach us that this is what Jesus must be if we're going to experience the, all the blessing that he intends for us. He must be a Savior that gets outside of your Sunday mornings to be the Savior he desires to be for you. And Mark takes us through example after example of Jesus proclaiming the good news through his encounter with different kinds of suffering people and and evil influences to clearly communicate that fact. Jesus is a must for every area, every chapter of our life. Jesus heals and comforts suffering people and conquers evil that, that has always been beating them down. Jesus came to this world for that reason, for them and for you. Jesus is the good news. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ. The beginning of the good news which is Jesus Christ, we could say. One of my favorite stories in Act 1 is found in chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. I want to read it for you. If you'll turn over to chapter 2 with me. In Act 1, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And when he returned to Capernaum, that's Mission Central, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. Hey, Jesus is back. (laughs) And when you say that about someone like Jesus, people show up, right? Hey, Jesus is home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men, Um, and when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, that is above Jesus, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, how would you have responded to Jesus in that setting? I appreciate that, Jesus, but I'm crippled, right? Would have been probably our attitude or response. But let's keep reading. Your son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And there's a real cue from Mark. He he records their question, because that's the answer. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Bingo, (laughs) Mark says, without saying it, but God alone. And immediately Jesus, perceiving this in his spirit that they had questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? That alone should have gotten their attention, right? How do you know what we're thinking? Which is easier, Jesus said, To say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise up and take your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were amazed, there's that word again, amazed, and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. Who is this guy? He forgives sins. He heals a paralytic. (laughs) We know this guy. And look at what he's doing. Friends, the reason I I share with you this story, one of my favorites, uh, and there's a ton happening in this story, and we'll cover it eventually. But I just want you to see here, just now, by way of introduction to the Jesus that Mark is presenting is his compassion. The compassion he had on this paralytic. Was the same compassion he showed for the leprous man that Josh read about in the reading. He said, if if you want to heal me, you can, Jesus. And Jesus says, I will. Having compassion on him, he says, I will. So just keep the, the amazing depth of compassion in your mind as I continue talking to you here. Through these three acts, it was obvious this, that this man was paralyzed. No one had to guess, but Jesus recognized a deeper problem, the real problem, which was his guilt over sin. So, so Jesus addressed that most important issue first. Son, your sins are forgiven. I'm sure that if you were to talk to that man right now, he would, he would say to us, if he were up here beside me, you know what, that was enough. I didn't need anything more. That was my problem. And Jesus solved it. And it just so happens that that's our problem. You know, we think our problems might be financial, might be marital, might be relational of some sort. My problem might be my vocation, right? No. Our biggest problem is in relation to God. Whether you were this paralyzed man, in the first century or where you're sitting in this room this morning our problems our primary problem is all the same and Mark says this is exactly what Jesus addressed first of course as it is with Jesus always you always get way more than you bargain for but so Jesus not only solved his primary problem he says and and, oh yeah by the way you can walk This is what happens to people when they come to Jesus. He resolves their primary issue, but also abundantly blesses them more and more. John said in his gospel in chapter 1, verse 16, that, uh, where is that? For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace, abundance upon abundance. This is what Mark is communicating to us. And it seems that, that this is also something Mark wanted to communicate. He keeps bringing all these different stories in front of our eyes to see all these people suffering and, and, and hurting deeply. And Jesus solving their problem and then abundantly throwing on blessing on blessing in their lives. And so Mark would say if, if you get in Jesus' way, you're going to get blessed. The blind man, the lame man, the sick man, the leprous man, the bleeding woman, they all knew this. They all said, take me to Jesus, put me beside the road where he will walk by, lower me through a roof, let me get to him so I can just touch the fringe of his garment. Why? Because they knew that if they got in Jesus' way, they would get blessed. That's why. If they could just get in Jesus' way, they would get blessed. And he didn't disappoint this paralyzed man in chapter 2, did he? No. He solved his primary problem and just added blessing on top of it. The only person that I can think of that walked away disappointed from Jesus was the rich, drunk, rich young ruler. Remember him? Uh, Jesus said, well, you need to you know, sell all your possessions and give to the poor and then come follow me. And because he was so wealthy, he walked away disappointed. He didn't believe Jesus was worth that. And so he was disappointed. My question here this morning, if we're going to apply these things just briefly, is are you putting yourself in front of Jesus? Are you intentionally getting in his way? You do this by spending time with him. Friends, get in Jesus' way. Open up his word, speak to him through prayer, attend with the saints, be where he is, be on the side of that road where he is passing by, be in that sanctuary where he is preached, be in front of your scriptures at home, be in prayer. He will take care of your most urgent and pressing needs as well as pour blessing on top of you. Act two, let's look at act two. Chapter 7, verse 24 through chapter 10. We'll call this the expansion of Jesus' ministry. The expansion of Jesus' ministry. What's the setting? The setting of these chapters, of this act, takes place on the, on the way from Galilee to Jerusalem. So his headquarters were in Galilee, but he was moving towards Jerusalem for, as his ultimate uh, destination. And so on the way from Galilee, to Jerusalem is this second act, all right? What's the theme of this act? Discovering the true identity of Jesus Christ. That's the theme. Discovering the true identity of Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus? And what does his messiahship mean? So on the way to Jerusalem, he expands his ministry, not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles alike. He, on his way, he makes sure his disciples clearly understand his true identity. Turn with me to chapter 8, which is in the dead center of the book, which isn't a mistake, by the way. This is, Mark intended this to be the pinnacle of his argument to help us see who Jesus is. In Mark chapter 8, verse 27 through 29, I want to read it for you. I want you to see this climax. It says this, <clears throat> And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea, Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples. Remember, on the way, Act 2, on the way he, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? There's the question that Mark wants you to answer. Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered you are the Christ. You're the God of Heaven. You're the Promised One. You're our only hope. You're our Savior. You are the Christ, is what Peter's answers was. There's the identity. Halfway through the book, we have somebody acknowledging the identity of Christ, and it's not till the end of the book we see the next person, the only the second person acknowledge the true identity of Christ. But here in Act Two. Uh, we see also that Jesus is transfigured to cement in our minds who he is. Why? What's the transfiguration all about? It's kind of a, a weird story in the Gospels. Jesus goes up onto a mountain with Peter, James, and John and is transfigured. He, he becomes hyper-glorious in front of them. It says his, his garments shone like brilliant white like lightning. They couldn't even look at him. It was so brilliant. Where else do we read that in Scripture? That someone had that same experience with God Mount Sinai does that come to anybody's mind Moses yes and that's Mark's point this one who was transfigured in front of Peter James and John is the same one who showed his glory to Moses it's the I am of Exodus (laughs) that's we're going to spend some time on that because it is just unbelievably powerful I can't wait to get there. But our Savior, this Jesus, who Mark is presenting, is the God of the universe. And he, this transcendent God, became one of us with human flesh and dirt under his fingernails. What a Savior. And and how do we apply this second act? And we'll, we'll see this repeatedly through the second act. Who do you say that Jesus is? Is he this, you know, nice Jewish man who was a good teacher? Oh, well, no, I think he's God, and, I, and you know, I, I became a Christian when I was eight and baptized when I was nine, and, and that, I mean, I, I believe in Jesus. Really? So you say you believe in Jesus, that he is the God of the universe, and yet you have him in a compartment someplace? Wow. Mark wants us to think about that a little bit. Who do you say that I am? If you say, sit here this morning and say, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, it has to have some influence, impact on your life. If you truly believe it. If he is who he's claimed to be, our lives must reflect that. Have we submitted ourselves to him? What parts of our lives remain outside of his rule, unaffected by his authority in our lives? If he is God, does he or does he not hold claim to everything in my life? And this leads, of course, directly to act three, the final act of this drama. Act three includes chapters 11 through 16, and this is the pinnacle of Jesus's ministry, of course, because it takes place in Jerusalem which is where Calvary is located, the place of his crucifixion. And so the setting is Jerusalem, of course. And what's the theme? Jesus fulfilling his mission. That's the theme of those last six chapters. This act holds a surprising paradox of how the God of the universe, Jesus, becomes our Messiah King. And how he does it is so familiar to us, we forget how crazy it is that the God, the king of the universe, became a servant. The God of the universe who deserves all our loyalty, all of our allegiance, all of everything about us, put himself below us and served us. Jesus Christ came in the world to serve, not to be served. You see, normally kings have a different approach to life than that. This king takes away sin, takes away our sin, by taking it on himself. This king gives life by dying. This king brings comfort and joy by removing all the comforts of his life. This king takes our sin and gave us his righteousness. This king paid our penalty that we owed, and he didn't. The second person in this book that acknowledges the identity of Jesus, as Mark wants us to acknowledge, is found at the very end at the crucifixion. You remember who it was? The centurion, the Roman soldier. He was observing Jesus for the last six hours of his life, from the time he was being beaten in Pilate's court to the time he was taken off the cross. Those were the six hours of observation Observation that he had. All right, six hours and what was his conclusion? Truly, truly this was the Son of God. We've had most of our lives to look at the evidence We've had sermon upon sermon, read through the New Testament, how many times? What's our conclusion? He had six hours. He never heard Jesus preach. That soldier never probably ever ev- evidenced any miracle. He just saw him die. And his conclusion was, this is God. That's the shocking claim of Mark. Mark. That's the point of the book. That is what we must pursue as we open these pages week after week looking for Jesus. Learning his identity and what difference it makes to me and you on a daily basis. Oh friends, be here. Be here so that you will be able to see what the Roman soldier saw. Be here so that you will understand what Peter understood in the 8th chapter. Friends, by the end of our study in the Gospel of Mark, you will know Jesus' identity, and probably sooner than that. That won't be the question, though, that comes to mind, because most of us already say, at least intellectually, we believe who he is. The question is whether or not you will follow him. Not simply identify him, but will you follow him and make much of him? As we must if He is who we say He is. The Christ, the Son of God. Pray with me. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we plead with you at this time to meet us in this Gospel of Mark, this, this beautiful book that reveals the identity of Oh, Jesus, our Savior, Father, I pray that you will send your Holy Spirit to minister to, it, to us weekly and draw our hearts into communion and fellowship with our Savior, that you will bring us to the place of repentance from things that we have put our hope and trust in and, and turn that, that repentance toward Christ, that we would yield all to him, that we would embrace all, submit all of Christ. Jesus, we thank you for your patience with this man, John Mark. Thank you for his mentor, Peter. Thank you for moving Paul to the point of reuniting with him and and encouraging his ministry. I pray that we would receive the blessing that you intend because of all these things that took place around the life of this young man who experienced you personally. Bless us as we are ministered to Holy Spirit by you. Do a work of grace in our church, in our lives, individually also. And I pray this in the name of our great Savior, Jesus Christ, who is Lord and King of the universe. Amen.